I greet you all warmly in the wonderful name of our glorious God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. It is a great blessing to be found in the house of the Lord. I'd love to take this time and welcome our brothers and our sisters uh, who have joined us this morning all the way from Central Baptist. It is a joy to be with them yesterday. Uh, they've been camping for this weekend and they did ask me to join them and uh, share the word of God with them yesterday. So it's good to have you this morning and God would have it that you'd take a second dose to what we've been sharing yesterday. Because we've been looking at relationships. And I would also want to take this time and appreciate and thank all of you uh, for the continued prayers and amazing support we have received. We are still here, and I think we will catch up uh, more and just praying that the Lord would give us wisdom that will continue to honor Him and glorify Him as a body of Christ here at Florida. And we do covet your prayers uh, for the next few weeks ahead of us. Turn with me in your Bibles, the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, this morning. Ephesians, chapter 5, we have been looking at the marks of a spirit-filled family. And in this sermon series, we have so far examined the marks of a spirit-filled wife. And uh, at the moment, we are looking at the marks of a spirit-filled husband. And you wonder, like my wife was asking, are we still talking about husbands? I said, yes. Because God is the author of all human relationships. God, the Almighty, has established laws in relationships that have not changed with the passing of time. We must understand that. Such that, I repeat and I want to emphasize this, to violate God's ordained relationship principles in the family is to invite disaster. And I did point out to you last week that the government of South Africa has done just that. Beginning in 1953, there was a bill that was passed. That bill was curtailing marital power and allowing wives to conduct certain transactions. That was good. But as you move down to 1984, the history tells us, and this of access from the World Bank blocks of all places, then in 1984, marital power is prospectively abolished for all civil marriages by the Matrimonial Property Act. As you head down in the 
history then as you come to 1988 an amendment of the matrimonial property act was set in place where now it abolished all marital powers for civil marriages between black people then as you come to 1993 at the dawn of what you and I would know as the democratic South Africa the general law fourth amendment repeals the husband's marital power over the wife for all civil marriages regardless of when they were contracted so in essence what do you have go to the next slide the dismantling of apartheid and the adoption of the new constitution was the chance for the government of South Africa to push for gender equality in different areas of the law the most impactful reform according to Nisha and Natalia they will point out to say the most impactful reform was the general law of fourth amendment which for the first time for the first time 1993 it repelled the husband's marital power over the person and the property of his wife in essence the wife then is allowed to be the head of the home bill passed and that is what is governing and that is what is uh, has been taught to our society that is what you find and it's sword in the media and as the church we see it and for the last almost close to 30 years you want to see this that then this is the governing philosophy that is then prevailing both in our society but also what do we see then in our homes is a true reflection of this and sadly like i said last week there are many sisters who have joined this wagon and they want to be heads of their homes then you have many men who have also bought into this idea and they have resigned and they've taken the back seat where they don't want to lead and they don't want to take the place which God has designed for them to take and we have allowed the enemy to come and as we have seen and we will see this we have allowed the enemy to come as he did in Genesis chapter 3 and dictate as to how things should be in the home so my appeal to us this morning as we look at this text I want us to understand that we are not wrestling against flesh and blood we are still in the battlefield we are fighting against principalities powers rulers and authorities in heavenly places and the weapons of our faith are not carnal but they are mighty in God to put down philosophies and arguments that have exalted themselves above the knowledge of Christ the kingdom of god is in fact 
the rule of God in every area of life, including the church, the home, the workplace, and even our neighborhood. To ignore these truths when entering any sphere is to do so at once on demise. What should men do then? Should we take the plaques and say, give us back the leadership? No. Because the weapons of warfare are not such. What we need them to understand and what the Apostle Paul is presenting to us in this text, men must come then to this understanding. Although the government assumes to say that they have taken the power, God has designed and he has determined that the man will be a leader. So you are a leader not because you are demanded to be a leader. You are a leader by design. Amen? In verses number 22 of Ephesians chapter 5, all the way to verse number 23, implies that men are the head. Wives are to submit. They are submitting to the leadership of this man. It's implied. They are not commanded to lead. They are created to lead. So we have examined as to how that leadership looks like. We have looked at this and we have said that biblically speaking, marriage is a permanent and exclusive union of one man and one woman. On this foundation, though tough, it is to maintain strong families and nations are raised on this foundation. Of course, it cannot be sustained without a spiritually or a spirituality that mandates love above lust, submission, as the secret of greatness, meekness as the source of glory, and service as a path to power. So to the man who has been saved, to the man who has been redeemed, not only is he have, does he have the power by design, but to such a man, he has the power of the Holy Spirit to lead him and to guide him to be a man who will lead. But then this man who is designed to assume this role has got one duty. And the duty he has is to love his wife. How does that love look like? Stand on your feet as we read from verse 25 to 33 of Ephesians. hear the word of the Lord. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, 
without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word. Amen. You may have your seats. Let's bow our heads and ask the Father to be with us as we examine this text together. Our glorious Savior, we bow before you this morning. We do thank you. We thank you for Jesus Christ and for all that he has accomplished for us. We do honor you that you are God who has called us to this particular task. I do thank you for each one of these, my dear brothers and sisters, as we desire to display and to show forth your glory among us, a crooked and corrupt generation. We ask that your Holy Spirit would empower us to be able to do such, to redeem the times knowing that the days are evil to make use of every opportunity and to not allow anything of this world to intoxicate our minds. Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit that we may understand what the will of the Lord is, that which is pleasing in your sight. So lead and guide us into all truth, O Holy Spirit. Help me, therefore, to be clear, and that you will minister to us in a special way. If there are some among us who do not know you, oh God, use this passage as well to lead them to yourself as we consider your sacrificial love for us. It is for your glory, for the sanctification of your bride, the church we ask. May God's people say amen. So for the last week, we did examine together the nature of this love that the husband is mandated. We focus on verse 25, and that's where we're going to be this morning, 25, all the way to verse number 27. In verse 25, we did, dip, dip, we did pick this out in verse 25, that verse 25 contains three things regarding this love. We have the mandate, 
that the husband has, he is mandated to love his wife. Then we have the model in verse 25. The model is as Christ. That's what verse 25 reveals to us. We can observe those things in this verse. Verse 25 also shows us the manner of this love. So those three things. And last week we looked at the mandate and the model. The mandate to love, the model being Christ. The manner in which this love is to be expressed, therefore, as you see in verse 25, this love is, all the way from verse 25 to 33, you can pick the manners as to how this love is reflected. It's in three ways. One, it's a sacrificial love, verse number 25. Two, in verse 26, it is a sanctifying love. Three, it is the self type of love in verse number 28 all the way to verse number 33. But this morning we'll focus on those two aspects. That the command which God is giving to the husband is a command that requires that the husband loves his wife in a sacrificial manner. Where are we getting that? The term that's used, that name, love, that word love, is the unconditional, sacrificial love of God. As opposed to the affection love, that which we call eros, type of love, as opposed to the uh, love among us, the brothers, this love that God is commanding the husband to display is a love which is Christ-like love. So the husband then must come into this institution of marriage, and he, this man who has been redeemed, according to chapter number 2, this man who is in this union of marriage needs to come in fear of the Lord. He is coming in to build with God, and this will be the essential foundation upon which this marriage is going to be built. It is not determined by the constitution of the government. This love is not determined by what your culture tells you as to how you ought to love your wife. This love is neither detected by your feelings and your emotions. It is a selfless, sacrificial love. It does not describe an emotional love, but it represents the act of the will of one who desires and seeks the other's highest good. And in this context, this is the divine love, which is one of the fruits of the Spirit. It is not something that comes from you. We spent time to look at that last week. You do not have this. 
We looked at Romans chapter number 5 last week from verses number 1 where Paul tells us that the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts. This love has been made possible because the Holy Spirit of God has come, has taken residence within us. Where do we see that? Go to chapter number 1 of Ephesians. Verse number 13 and 14 tells us, In him, speaking of Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. So there was a necessity for you first to be saved. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, you believed in him. And you were sealed with the promise, Holy Spirit. So the Spirit of God who dwells in you, who is the seal which you're going to come to as we're going to look at the, sanctifi the sanctifying work of the Spirit, He is the seal of the, of the guarantee of your inheritance. He also is the one who then works out this fruit of God in you according to Galatians chapter number 5. You can write that, verse number 22 all the way to verse number 25. So then any attempts to exhibit agape love based upon natural strength, we can conclude. Any attempt to exhibit this agape love based on self-effort, all of those attempts are destined to fail. The probability of you trying to pursue this love the probability of failing are 100%. So Christ then becomes the model, and he is the one who is showing us how this love looks like. He loves us, and he loved us in spite of us. We were not lovable. We were not nice. We were not cute. We were not angels like we would call our kids. Oh, my angel. Or we were not so nice that he bestowed his love on us. We were unlovable, yet he loved us anyway. He did not come with that small letter paper, with small letters underneath, with terms and conditions. He did not. He loved us unconditionally. And the most excellent way that the Apostle Paul defines this love in a very pragmatic way is found in 1 Corinthians chapter number 13. So the Apostle there tells us what this love is. I know you know this text. So let's go there. 1 Corinthians chapter number 13, the Apostle Paul writes to the believers in Corinth, who were, by the way, fighting amongst themselves regarding gifts. They were fighting amongst themselves as to who is most spiritual amongst us. And the apostle reminds them in 1 Corinthians chapter number 13, as you see there, 
Let's start with chapter 12, verse number 31. Listen to what he says now. But earnestly desire the higher gift. And he says, and I will show you a more excellent way. In essence, what the apostle is depicting there, you remember in chapter number 5 of the book of Ephesians, verse number 1 and 2, the apostle Paul is saying, Be imitators of God as beloved children. And he commands them to say, Walk in love. And if you pick that Ephesians 5, verse 1 and 2, what the apostle is commanding of them in chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, and what he is saying in 1 Corinthians 12, Verse number 31 is one thing. So the most excellent way is the way of love. How does that look like? Depicting love? Number one, Paul says love is patient. In other words, it has a long fuse before it blows out. True agape love is patient endurance even when provoked. It endures even when it is long-tempered. It does not retaliate. That's what it means. It is patient. Number two, it says love is kind. This word refers to active goodness. It is never hateful or mean. Love is kind in words, and it's kind in actions. It provides something beneficial for the needs of the other. So by implication then, what Paul is calling the husband, he is calling the husband to be patient with his wife. Peter would say, live with them in an understanding manner. It is not jealous. It does not boil over easily. Instead of being jealous when others prosper or excel, love is pleased. This agape love, it is pleased when they do well. This love does not brag. It does not exhibit self-display or conceit. In essence, what is this? term bragging simply means, literally it means, it does not make a parade. It doesn't go off and take all the flags and the banners, men, as you are working and laboring in your home, what this necessitates, it does not call you to take all the banners, all the time that everything must be pointed to you. Look how I am providing. Look how I am protecting. Look how I am rebelling. Look how I am sacrificing. So everything must be about you for you to your glory. No, agape love does not draw attention to itself or to what it is doing. And it is the same in the church. These principles are principles that must be held not only in the marriage context, but in any other relationship. This type of love, the word that comes next to the word, it does not brag. Similar to it, it is not arrogant or proud. It does not demand to be number one. That's what it means. It is not provoked. 
or aroused. In essence, what it means, it is not touchy. It is not easily irritated. It does not have a sharp, contentious edge. It does not have a spasm over every little irritation. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is at work. So there is an element of self-control. And that is the nature of this agape love. So the sacrificial love that the Apostle Paul caused these men to subscribe to. It's not love as it is depicted in Hollywood. It is love as it is depicted in Christ. This type of love bears all things. It protects by covering over the faults and the frailties of the others. It believes all things and hopes all things. It looks at the bright side of things and does not despair. This type of love, it endures all things. It continues in activity despite resistance and opposition. This is the love that the apostle affirms in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4 to 8, to say it is the love that never fails. It is never without effect. It will never come to an end. Know that the Apostle Paul uses the present imperative. He commands that the husbands will continually love their wives. It's not a once-off thing. You buy the chocolate and you say you love her. It's not a once-off act. This is a day-to-day, daily devotional, daily duty of a man who is committed to his wife. Amen to all my sisters. And it is to this love that wives then voluntarily, willingly submit You see, democracy, at the dawn of democracy, everyone thinks they have rights. Everyone wants to have things their own way. So everything must be done for you, to you, and for your glory. I've learned the language, my space. Everyone thinks they have their space. So don't intrude into my space. Even the married couples. Strange. But you are one flesh. If you are one flesh, where is the space? The space is nullified. But everyone wants to come with their rights, my rights, my way. First for women, we, we, we buy into those insurance companies, right? So we, 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 we take it like that. So everyone wants to be first. Everyone wants to dominate. But this type of love is a Christ-like, divine, spirit-controlled, spirit-empowered love. And the Apostle Paul, as he writes this, he is not naive of the current affairs of his day. Because it is known that in the Greek or Roman society, it was recognized that wives had obligations to their husbands. 
that was what was believed upon. It was only expected of wives to make sure that they fulfill their obligations to their husbands. But guess what? It was not vice versa. In essence, men were not expected to do anything. So you see the beauty of Christianity then. You've seen what is happening in Iran, right? You've seen that? Read the news. There's even immorality or morality police in Iran. And that is the state in which this command, as the apostle is giving it, as he says this, then this is countercultural. Maybe you don't know that. As the apostle is commanding men to love their wives, it was countercultural. It was contrary to the common thinking of the Greek or Roman society. In this then, in other, and other respects, Christianity, what Christianity is doing, it is introducing a revolutionary approach to marriage. And cause the husband to treasure his wife not as a thing, but as one who is an heir of the same grace which he has been a partaker of. It caused the man to treasure his wife not as somebody who is external from him, but as one who is one with him. So then, Christianity established this institution, takes it back to its original state as the world and Satan have tried to destroy it. One word summed up the role of the wife. Ephesians chapter 5, the wife is expected now to submit. One word does then sum up the role of the husband, and the duty of the husband is to love. This is the highest and distinctively word to love that's only used in the Christian language. Agapao. The love of a Christian man for his wife must be a response to and an expression of the love of God in Christ extended to the church. So let me ask you, what idea of love have you bought into? Husbands, are you more self-seeking and self-saving? Or are you more selfless in your love? Are you sacrificial? Are you servant-like that you let go of all your rights and all your pomp and what your society has told you that you are a man if you abuse your wife? You see, this type of love that the Apostle Paul is calling us to, it's a love depicted in the crucified Savior. There you see one who had all the glories, left the glories of heaven, became a servant. He did not come to be served. He came to serve and to give his life as a ransom 
for many. He was despised by the ones he came to save. You know by implication, men, you will at times be despised by your wife too. He was rejected by those he came to save. And sometimes, maybe, the actions of your wife would appear as though she is denying your very acts of love. But every time you see her sinfulness, see your own sinfulness, and consider your Savior, and cry out to the Lord that by His Holy Spirit then He will empower you to say with Christ, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. It takes the Holy Spirit of God. And the Apostle Paul will say this in the book of Colossians, chapter 3, verse 18 to 19. Listen to how this looks like, the implication of it. He says, wives, submit to your husbands as it is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, this is how it looks like. Love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Don't be harsh with them. You are not being nice. You are not being kind. You are not a man who is being sacrificial for what you can get. You give, and you give, and you give, and you give, and you give. Not of yourself, you give yourself. If there is one who is to obey the command, you must deny yourself, carry your cross daily. According to this context, the man is the one who is called to that first. Deny yourself. We then deny ourselves. To what extent? Until we are crucified. Check, would you be willing to die for your wife? Would you? This love is not affection answering to affection. That's what this love is. Warren Baba would say this, and I quote, Well, this love is not affection, answering to affection. This is what a lot of people think. Well, yes, I could love my wife if she, if she would just love me. If she would just show me a little attention and a little respect, I could love her back. That's why many men think, and Warren Baba would say, No, sir. It is not affection responding to affection. As a matter of fact, it is so unconditional that she doesn't even have to do a thing for us to be commanded to love her. It is love that strives the highest good of the one loved and will pay any price for it to take place, whatever it is. Whatever, it is, whatever is necessary for that person, the highest good that person 
will pay any price in order to see that those who have those needs, those needs are met. And the husband who embodies this love, who makes sure that the needs of his wife are met first and not his. It is the highest form of love, selfless, unconditional, and committed to the highest good of the wife. So it is in this type of love that we see then embodied, displayed in the Lord Jesus because he gave himself for the church. He suffered and he died for her. But what was the goal? Why did Christ do that? Why should a man even take to labor and love his wife in this way? Is it so that his home is a happy home? Is it so that he may enjoy peace? Aren't we making it now more selfish and not selfless? You're right. Actually, the goal is not so that the man will have it happy. The goal is not so that a man would enjoy a peaceful home, as good as those things are, don't get me wrong, but the goal, according to what the Apostle Paul says, the motif, look at the next verse and we finish. He says in verse number 26, the motif, why the man is sacrificing himself, why Christ had to sacrifice himself, was to this end. Verse 26, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the word with water. Why? So that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, and that she might be holy and blameless. Here comes the statement I said last week. So the goal is not happiness. The goal is holiness. So not only is this a sacrificial love, this love, the manner of this love that the husband is bestowing on the wife is, number two, a sanctifying love. You see in verse 26, the word sanctify simply means to set apart for God, not for self. It means to make a person or a thing clean. And that term is a priestly term. She is not being sanctified, as important as that is, that she is sanctified to you. She is set apart for you. That's the only woman God has given you. So it calls for sexual purity and fidelity. But she is not only sanctified to you, but according to this verse, Christ is sanctifying the church to God. And what the Apostle Paul has in view here, as he employs this word, sanctify, he is speaking when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he, his purpose was that he should sanctify for himself a people in truth. That was his goal. Unto God. Revelation chapter number 5, verse number 7. He has made us a kingdom of priests unto God. 
First Peter chapter number two, verse number nine. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a people chosen for who? For God. Once you are not a people, now you are a people. Once you are in darkness, now you are in the light. You and I have been brought unto God. And that is the goal. And the term sanctification that the apostle employs here, Paul is speaking primarily of sanctification as what the theologians refer to positional sanctification. The past tense salvation, the point in time when we were justified or declared righteous, when we were placed into the family of God, at that moment when we placed our faith in Christ, positionally, this is a once-off event, as in contrast to the progressive sanctification, in which those who have been justified, those who have been made righteous, are now God's own. So what is the implication then of this? It implies this, beloved. In our homes then, what must be our goal in our homes, if there is going to be peace in the home, if there is going to be love in the home, if God is going to be feared in the homes, the goal of the husband is to make sure that his wife is set apart unto God. And the means through which God does that he does that through his word. John 17, verse number 17. Christ's prayer, he prays, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. So it is on the husband who is then to take initiative, to take leadership. To make sure there is holiness in the home. And God has done that for us. That's what it means. Number two, there is this intimate significance that this term sanctify denotes. You see, not only are we set apart by the Lord to God, but there is also an idea here that the Apostle Paul plays with words here. In Paul's days, the father was the one who chose a bride for his son. Which is an analogy that we are seeing here, that among us the Godhead, God the Father, look at chapter 1 verse number 4, it is the Father who chose us in him, in Christ, in union with him, before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless in him. So in eternity past, believers were in the sense, in eternity past, believers were engaged to Christ. And this engagement that the Lord had already instituted before the foundations of the world was only realized into life until the day the Holy Spirit regenerated your heart. Look at the book of Ephesians, chapter number 1 again, verse number 14 and 15. 
So the Father chose us in Him, in other words, to be in union with Him, to be holy and blameless. But what the Father does, upon our conversion, we read this verse, right? In chapter number 1 of Ephesians, verse number 13, In Him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, you believed, and you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Who is this Spirit? He is a guarantee of our inheritance. The idea there is that we are sanctified to Christ by God the Father. And the Holy Spirit then acts as a ring to this old engagement between the Father and the Son. The Father chooses the bride for His Son. The Son then, upon salvation, that wedding which is about to happen in eternity to come is made possible and guaranteed because we are now engaged to the Son on salvation. And the Holy Spirit is the ring as a seal, a guarantee of our inheritance. So then, it is of essence that then we must be born again. It is of essence then that a man and a woman, even if they are to enjoy true union with God and with one another, it calls for them to realize the mystical element as to what the marriage depicts. Marriage is not just a union that you have just decided to constitute. It displays the relationship that Jesus has with this church. As such, it calls for love, sacrificial love. As such, then, it calls for sanctifying love. As such, in such a marriage, what kind of fruit will come from it? What will be the outcome of all the love, all the effort in marriage? A strong marriage then will bear fruit to the glory of God. Number one, such kind of marriage then, in that home, as I've indicated, there will be a home that will be sanctified. A marriage lived out according to the principles of the Word of God is a marriage that keeps God at the center. It produces a home where Jesus is King and God. It's a marriage where Jesus Christ is reign as sovereign. It is a marriage that opens the door for God to bless in amazing ways. It is a marriage that glorifies the Savior. Look at verse number 32 of chapter 5. This mystery is profound. And I am speaking about, it refers to Christ and the church. So a marriage that operates according to the principles of God's word, it brings glory to the Lord. God is glorified when we live out our marriages according to his precepts. This is true because a marriage that functions according to the word of God is a marriage that honors his will. And doing his will always brings glory to his name. So we keep the main things, the main things. It is in this marriage then that then a husband and a wife, we come to chapter number six, they are able to then instruct the next generation. Chapter 6, verse 1 to 4. Mom, 
You model godliness before your kids as you submit to your husband. Dad, you model Christ's likeness well as you sacrificially, in a sanctifying way, love your wife. So to those then who are not married, it is to this type of marriage that you need to aspire to. It is to this type of a man that you can pray for the Lord to really bless you. A man who will love you sacrificially. A man who will love you with a sanctifying love. To those of us who have been in it and we are still in it, it is this love we aspire. And to those of us who have been there and we've done it and we are there sitting, we can pray that the Lord in our local churches would have these type of men loving their wives in a sanctifying and sacrificial love. To church, we are the bride of Christ. The desire of our master who died for us sacrificially, he desires of us to love one another in a sacrificial manner. He desires us to love each other in a sanctifying way. This is applicable to the sinners then. No, you have a savior who has loved you enough with a sacrificial love. That love is able to sanctify you from darkness to light that you can be set apart for the one who made you and before whom you will stand if you close your eyes today. Two manners in which the husband will love his wife, he will love his wife in a sacrificial, with a sacrificial love, he will love his wife with a sanctifying love. This is made possible. Or should we speak like in a business language? This is empowered. This is sponsored by the Holy Spirit. Whose power is the power that the government is unable to take it away from you? Not even ESCOM. It is the power that made the heavens and the earth. It is the power that raised Christ Jesus from the grave. That's the power we are talking about. Light in darkness, hope in the despair. Let's pray and ask the Lord to empower us with such a power. Our glorious God and Savior, we do bow before you. We acknowledge of your infinite goodness. You are God who pities us. You love us in spite of us. You demonstrate your love for us in that whilst we are still sinners, Christ Jesus died for the ungodly. So now we ask, empower us, O oh God, by your Holy Spirit. May we look beyond our own human interests. May we love beyond our prejudices. May we love beyond our fluctuations and lusts.
so as to present your church pure, blameless, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. So grant us the grace as you will sanctify us each day. In Jesus' name we ask and may God's people say amen.